Ecclesiastes chapter 5. I will be preaching through verse 9 of chapter 6. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, beginning in verse, I'm sorry, 8. Did I say that? Ecclesiastes 5, verse 8, going to chapter 6, verse 9. A little bit of a longer section, but of similar similar theme. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his own eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again. Naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil, just as he came, so shall he go, and what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his day he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy. Upon mankind, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he, even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good. Do not all. Go to the one place. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool, 
And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of it. Lord, we ask that you might grant to us wisdom that however hard our hearts buck against what is true, that we would surrender to your word as that which gives wisdom and life and understanding and moves us in such a way that we are made able by your spirit to say, O Lord, we are your servants. Speak and help us to understand your will. We ask all of this in your name. Amen. So you'll see in your bulletin, the outline is a little bit, um, well, it's, le- it's a leftover outline, but there are just two points. We'll get to them in a minute, but I want to let you know if you're thinking, this looks familiar. First of all, let me praise you for your memory. <laughs> Sometimes I know it's hard to remember. Uh, but we're moving to a, a, a subject that is not disconnected from the one prior. This evening, what we see is the joy and the freedom, the liberty of contentment, the satisfaction with being content with what you have. I think all of us understand this principle, but there are times where we find ourselves ravaged and under the control and the power of seeking to possess all manner of things because we think it will stave off emptiness, boredom, and maybe loneliness even. The question for us is, what advantage does the rich have over the poor, the powerful over the weak? There is no advantage. In fact, there is advantage time and again, Solomon mentions, uh, not only in this book, but also in the Proverbs, there is advantage. We even saw it in the book of Proverbs, to pretend to be poor. I just found that to be an interesting way of translating. Let's enter into a lifelong simulation of having little so that we might learn how to live with contentment. That is really a continued theme. We saw it in chapter 13 this morning, and we see that theme again this evening. Two points that I want to make. The first, the first is the power dilemma. The power dilemma. Sounds like a a business book title, doesn't it? The power dilemma. How do we reconcile with the abuse of power and wealth in the world? What is that dilemma? And then secondly, the freedom of contentment. The freedom of contentment. Let's look at the first point, the power dilemma. Now in verse 8, in verses 10 through 11, in verses 13 through 17, and really woven throughout this text, are expressions of the inadequacy of wealth to give the very thing that people pursue wealth for. They find that when they have laid hold of wealth, that it just sort of slips through their fingers or the joy and satisfaction that they thought it would bring. Wealth is more than money. And when I want us to think of wealth, I want you to think of tools, time, technology, anything that is at your disposal to be used for the furthering of your kingdom, or the kingdom of Christ. Your cell phone is wealth. 
How do you incorporate and use all of the gifts of God in order to bring about the furthering of his kingdom? Well, many, many whom Solomon is writing about are those who endeavor to amass for themselves security, a blanket, borders, so that they may push out, stave off, protect themselves from the inevitable. And the inevitable for everyone is what? We all go to the same place. It's not Walmart, it's death, which <laughs> those things sometimes feel a little bit related, don't they? It just feels like I will die in this line. It's so long. Here is this, this sort of not just that there is a hard stop, but all of the things that death indwells, all of the things that remind us of death, like the death of a friend or disease or deprivation, injury, loss. Now here, Solomon opens with this verse. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, don't be amazed. Part of that is, it's just par for the course. This is the way life is. The rich, the powerful oppress the weak. Yet, what he also means by do not be amazed or horrified is that there's someone over that person and there's someone over that person. And there's someone over that person and so on and so on until you get to the top. And the top is what? The king of heaven and earth. And instead of this cycle or hierarchy of power, he actually says in verse nine, what's better is a king who cultivates fields, a, a farmer king, a humble king, a king who knows where his power and the goods of his province or nation are derived from, a king who has not forgotten where his riches come from. But this is often a rarity, isn't it? And in fact, Solomon speaks about this, that even the poor young man grows up to be an old foolish king because he is enticed and tempted by wealth and power. This is the story of Solomon. It's a story that we have seen countless times, not only in literature, but in real life. Power and wealth and the promise of the adoration of men is intoxicating. And we will do almost anything to get it. Attention, notoriety, even infamy itself, the kinds of things that we will do, how we will make fools of ourselves on social media, the pictures that we take of ourselves, the kinds of things we say. All of these things are abuses of wealth, and they will only get us in trouble. And so in verse 8, a king who oppresses the poor is a violation of justice. In verses 10 through 11, we read that to love wealth is to be dissatisfied with wealth. Look at this verse. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. What? Really? Because I don't understand how that's true. Well, you know why? Because you probably haven't had a lot of wealth. And then you get it, and then you realize, oh, I'm still anxious about tomorrow. I can still die in a car wreck. I can still be diagnosed with cancer. It can all be taken away. $10 million can be raised, and then it can be taken away. We've seen this. There is no security. 
Even currency itself is a, a kind of illusion, isn't it? There is no security. It is all vanity, which means it just burns. It burns. Paper money really burns. I mean, I've never burnt paper money. I don't have the audacity, but it burns. And it's not just paper. Obviously, there's some fabric, but it all burns. And burning doesn't just refer to the act of immolating something, throwing it on the fire. But it is temporary. It can rust. It can deteriorate. The strong commonly afflict the poor for this reason, so that they may gain more security. And they abuse the weak because it's easy. They do it for their own devices. They do it for their own glory. And oftentimes the powerful, the rich, oppress the poor and the weak. And not only that, but in this power dilemma, there is also the misery of misspent wealth. Look at verse 13. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is the father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. And so the right way to do things is establish for yourself and for your family some kind of inheritance. But instead, what is happening here in verse 13 is someone who has all of this wealth, but it is wasted. It is misspent so that at the end of his life, there is nothing left to give to his wife or to his children. It's gone. It just, boom. Do you ever feel this way when you check the status of your bank account? I had money there yesterday. What happened? Well, the power bill went through. The water bill went through. The kids' sports stuff went through. All of these things went through. The mortgage went through. And all of a sudden, you're going, I felt good yesterday. I felt like we were in a good place. And now I feel like I, I can't get ahead. Well, welcome to almost everyone that has ever lived in the history of the world. What if the crops didn't come in 500 years ago? Oh, no, the kids are not going to be able to go. No, the kids are not going to be able to eat. <laughs> we live in an age of untold, incomparable wealth and comfort. And so wisdom literature is especially fitting for us because there are all of these things. We who think ourselves paupers 500 years ago eat like kings. We can eat beyond what is needed to fuel our lives, and still we have stuff left over. In this power dilemma, there is this idea of the misery of misspent wealth. Well, what is mis misspent wealth? Well, it is either misgained or immorally gained, stealing or seeking gain with an insatiable appetite. I want, I want, I need, I need. And you take all of this in, Easy come, easy go, or immoral spending, using it wantonly or investing poorly. You can gain and spend in such a way as to pay homage to the, this idea that it is in this life that I seek satisfaction, or you can gain or earn and spend in such a way as to pay homage to eternity in the glory and lordship of your creator. And this is the the dilemma that Solomon is speaking into, 
that he is endeavoring to teach us in the midst of how do we live as those who are poor of spirit. In the verses 1 through 6 of chapter 6, we see this elusive gift of delighting in power and wealth. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children, this must be like some MBA guy, I guess, professional athlete. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. He's surrounded by family, but he's alone. Do you know why he's alone? Do you know how to get to the point of having a hundred children? By cheating on a lot of women. And you know what that ends up as? Being alone. The misery of it. And though he has this entire family, it's not family, is it? It's just amassing more riches and power and pleasure for himself. And the fruit of that is what? That he's no better off than a child that did not make it. A stillborn child. And not only that, but it comes in vanity, temporariness, and it goes in darkness. And it's darkness, it's name, or his name is covered Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all one go to the same place. Wow. I mean, this is Solomon at his most brutal. Even if you live to be 2,000, sired hundreds of children, If you do not seek to give glory to God or pay homage to him as the author of your wealth and honor him with your wealth, there is no point. It would have been better had you never gained that wealth or even been born to begin with. What Solomon is saying is this. There are people that we respect in this life whose lives account for nothing. Nothing. They are not worthy of our respect. They are worthy of our pity because in the end, they have nothing. If you endeavor to build an empire, a kingdom on earth, out of the stuff of earth, you will find that you are building out of sand, on sand, and that fire is coming and it will all be turned to glass. There is no rest for those who are never satisfied There is no rest for the greedy, the selfish, the obsessed, those with insatiable appetite. They're never full. They're never satisfied. Have you tried? I think I've asked this question. To stop eating the pint of ice cream? You take a bite, and if you don't put it in a bowl, you're doomed, right? You put it in a bowl because the bowl is a kind of, (laughs) it's a way of reminding you Portion control. Just do portion control. But that pint goes so quickly. And then you look at the back and go, there was 1,100 calories in this thing. I don't need 1,100 calories for anything. I mean, am I going to go run a half marathon now? Because you probably have the energy to do it. But you've eaten it. And you think, I think there's a second pint of it. 
Do you understand? It's that insatiable appetite. You go from one thing to the other because you've gotten a taste and it is sweet. This is the kind of that easy inclination for the things of the world that is so it is so hard to fight in our hearts. But the stuff of earth has a shelf life. And God did not make us. Now listen, when Solomon is writing about these things, he's not saying that the way of holiness is to not enjoy things. In fact, look at verse 18. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun. Solomon is painting for us this kind of enduring perspective that we can be content and joyful even in the work. The world says it's the rest, it's the amusement, it's the entertainment, it's the weekend warrior. Do you know why the world doesn't worship on Sunday? Because they see worship as antithetical to the pursuit of pleasure. If they knew what was in the house of God and the glories of it, they would not be at the Panthers Stadium. They'd be here. They would not be racing, running, earning trophies, going for the medal. All of these things that the world says, if I do this, I will be successful. But unto what end? For what? Men do not understand the vanity. In fact, let me put it this way. Men do understand the vanity of wealth. They understand its temporary nature, but they cannot get off the treadmill, the hamster wheel of seeking more of it because they know that it doesn't last. And so they fool themselves into thinking more, more, more. And that is why so many in a world that is so wealthy are in such a state of emotional crisis. But there is a better way. It is the way of freedom through contentment. In Proverbs 13, we read it, or I read it, you listened this morning. Righteousness guards him whose way is blameless, but sin overthrows the wicked. One pretends to be rich, yet has nothing. Another pretends to be poor, yet has great wealth. The ransom of a man's life is his wealth, but a poor man hears no threat. What Solomon is getting to is, frankly, it's simpler to be poor. It is. It really is. And when he speaks of pretending to be rich, he's talking about pretension. When he's talking about pretending to be poor, he's talking about humility. This is what Christ means in Matthew chapter 10. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And in a world surrounded by wealth, and even if you are wealthy, you can discipline yourself to lose your life by pretending to have little. How do you do that? You hide your wealth from yourself. 
You seek not to live as one who thinks that it is in this life where we will have the ultimate pleasures. There is a problem with the heart of men. They look at treasure and they lust after it. They cannot forget it. They think that it will make them happy. It will give them security and peace. It will not. None, none can draw near to the Lord no matter how hard when man seeks to build a kingdom for himself. None. And in fact, oftentimes this is how we use wealth and honor and power. It is to build for ourselves a kingdom not unlike the kingdom of God. We are made in his image after all. We belong to that same race of men that built Babel, that builds nations and empires and legacies, all because we are not poor in spirit. Matthew chapter 5. We must all be poor in spirit before the Lord, who alone has the advantage. And what is that advantage? It is to have a kind of wealth that is eternal, a kind of wealth that is enduring, a kind of wealth that does not even require money. It is the wealth of contentment. Psalm chapter 50. This is what Christ says. For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle upon a thousand hills. I know all the the foals of the mountains and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell thee, for the world is mine in the fullness thereof. If it's Christ's, then to seek to take it for our own is itself an exercise in vanity. But to realize and understand that we have been invited to live in the house of the one who owns everything brings its own kind of contentment. To see God, our Father, to see Christ, our older brother, and to understand that having been reconciled through the blood of Christ, we've been brought into the family, and all the promises that Christ has received from the Father, Christ also gives to us, and that is what? That one day we will rule this land. Here's the problem. It's hard to wait for that. We want to rule, and rightly so, But rule what? Rule a kingdom that is still afflicted by sin under the sun? Or to wait to rule a kingdom that will endure forever? For us, the problem is patience. The problem is believing and trusting in the promises of God. And so the daily, regular exercise ought to be kings that labor in fields. It is to pretend to be a pauper so that we never lose not just the value of hard work. Have you heard this from your parents, children? You need to learn the value of hard work, (laughs) the value of a dollar. You don't know it until it's taken from you, like the first time you pay car insurance (laughs) or the first time you pay to repair your car or whatever it may be. All of a sudden you realize oh, I I have no money. (laughs) The bank owns my house. I'm paying taxes on this land. There are all these people and organizations 
to whom I owe some measure of responsibility. And so we must discipline ourselves to be free with contentment with the life that God has given. Look at verse 12 of chapter 5. Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Do y'all know what meat sweats are? Have y'all ever heard of that phrase? Uh, There's a place in Charlotte where you can go. It's a Brazilian sort of barbecue place. I can't remember the name. I don't remember anything from that night. I ate so much meat. And I ate so much meat thinking, I'm going to get my money's worth. I put myself into what is called meat sweats. Or after you eat all of this food, you are uncomfortable for hours. And then when you try to sleep at night, you wake up sweating because your body can't process all of what you just ate. The biblical word for that is gluttony. (laughs) And you have this little card, right? Red, green. Red means I'm good. Green means bring it. The problem with mankind is we don't know how to turn the card to red. It's always on green. Even to our harm, even to the point of misery. It's better to go to bed hungry. And you know what happens when you wake up hungry? Breakfast is so good. This is what Solomon means when he says, pretend to be a pauper. Discipline yourself. Rejoice even when you have little. Because contentment doesn't come with what's in your belly or what's in your bank account. It comes by knowing that there is a God who rules over heaven and earth and that he has ordained your days, that he knows you, he cares for you, and that he does want you to enjoy the stuff of earth. But not as ultimate delights, but as gifts given by him to you to use as good stewards to build his kingdom. Contentment is a spiritual gift. It is a fruit that comes when you acknowledge that there is nothing I deserve and that everything I have is a gift of God. And not just the good things, but the deprivation, whether it's hunger or illness, Christ has designed for you a life that is meant to be lived for his glory and his honor. 19. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is a gift. What is the gift? Rejoicing in. Joy is a spiritual gift. Love Joy. Joy does not come from the stuff of earth. It comes as a direct gift of the Holy Spirit while enjoying the stuff of earth and the gifts of God, but it cannot truly be experienced by those who do not have the Holy Spirit. You have never never met an unbeliever who has ever experienced true joy, ever. It comes from the Holy Spirit, and it is a gift for God's children. And it gives us 
rest. There have been times in our lives where we have experienced true contentment. We call this in my family fat and happy. You know what I'm talking about. Oh, I couldn't eat another bite. And we think, man, God is good. When it happens to an infant, we call it milk drunk. Have you ever seen a child? And they're just, oh. What Christ wishes for us to layer into the satisfaction of the things of earth, to bring into it and give context and meaning, is this is from God, and it is for God, and we ought to give thanks to God. I don't mean faux satisfaction, but real satisfaction in Christ Jesus. So even when we haven't eaten, or we are not filled, but we are hungry when we have lost family or friends or jobs, we can say, this too is of Christ Jesus, and I am content. Remember what Paul says? I have learned to be content. How did Paul learn contentment? At the hands of the Roman Empire, in suffering, in imprisonment. That is how he learned. And we say, I want that, and Christ says, hold on because you will only learn it through deprivation, through discipline that comes by God's gracious hand. In fact, we must ask ourselves then, if contentment is the path to freedom, where does this contentment come from? It comes from Christ in us by his Holy Spirit. And so Solomon wants us to do this as an exercise, to look at everything in your life and to trace its origin and its trajectory Where does it come from and where is it going? Of what use is it to me in the work of the kingdom? These questions are simple. Is it the stuff of earth? Is it vegetable, mineral, animal? And if it is one of these things, then it is not an ultimate delight, but it is a gift of God whereby it is to be used for the furthering of his kingdom and delighting in him. If it is of this earth, then you can be sure that it has a shelf life. And so you must enjoy it in such a way that you say, I will delight in this as long as I have it. And when it runs out, I will not do what the baby does when the bottle is empty. Throws a temper tantrum, throws the bottle across the room and says, I want another one. We say, Lord, thank you for that to delight in those moments, to not find or to grow weary in the impermanence of things, but to use them, time, money, gifts, talents, everything you have, everything you're surrounded by. I want you young people to go into your room and I want you to look at the thing that calls your heart to it and say, how can I use this for the furthering of the glory of God? And if you cannot find a way, then remove it from your life. Whether it's a person, a game, whatever it may be, it needs to be removed if it cannot be used for the glory of God. 
The only way that the stuff of earth can bring lasting joy and satisfaction is when we take the stuff of earth and we build something eternal with it. If you're going to use words, how can you make them enduring? Speak words of comfort, of peace, of grace, of edification. What does complaining get you? What does it get? Well, it may get some sympathy, but not for long. Nobody likes a perpetual complainer. Instead, do what? Rejoice in providence. Thank you, Lord, that my job is so miserable. (laughs) No, thank you, Lord, for whatever opportunities I have. Help me to take advantage even of the little moments. When you speak, exalt Christ. When you eat, thank Christ. When you walk, know this. There are only two types of travel. Going to the house of God and coming from the house of God. Now, this is what I mean by that. You go to be renewed or you go to take dominion. Anything else is a waste of time. You go to be renewed in the house of God and you leave to take dominion. We are to live lives that orbit the glory of Christ's honor. We go to his house to be strengthened, and then we go forth from his house, and we have our eyes set upon the heavenly kingdom. And whatever moves men to that kingdom. Now, it can be little things. Kids, I don't mean you have to do these sort of social media moments that are worthy of being recorded on film or by photos. Cleaning your room for the glory of God in honor of your parents furthers his kingdom. It's taking dominion. You learn this in God's house, don't you? It is here that we are shaped so that Monday through Saturday, we take dominion. Everything for the glory and honor of Christ Jesus. This is how we are to be content. In all things... Ephesians 5, give thanks. Lord, thank you for the breakdown. Thank you for the tumor. (laughs) Thank you for the job loss. Thank you for all things. Teach me to be content. Verse 7 of 6, chapter 6. All the toil of man is for his mouth, Yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. You see, we have seen Christ broken, smitten, and afflicted. We have seen Christ in his death, his burial, and his resurrection and ascension. And what we know of Christ now is that he rewards the faithful. Be one who sees Christ rather than one who wanders with your appetite. Have your life steady, beholding the risen Lord, rather than wandering after the things of this world. In Christ, there is a solution to our wandering appetites. For in Christ, there is a spirit who corrals our cravings and gathers our affections 
so that no matter what we experience in Christ, we have all that we need. Let's pray. Oh Lord, this is-